0: This is the Education Gadfly Show.
1: It's wonky, but it's good. That's me, wonky, but good. (laughs) Okay, Checker, good. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn.
0: Flapping back in. Happy to be with you.
1: Welcome back, Checker. Checker is, of course, our distinguished senior fellow and president emeritus. And it's great to have you here, Checker. We have you on for a special reason that is because you've got a new book out. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Checker. So the new book, Assessing the Nation's Report Card, Challenges and Choices for NAEP. That's right. You wrote a book about NAEP. This is like uh, writing a book about your own child.
0: Yes. Some of it's autobiographical. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah. No, it's uh, it's really important topic. Now, Ah, uh, you've been making making the rounds, talking to folks about why NAEP is important. I don't think you need to tell our listeners why NAEP is important. Uh, us policy wonks love NAEP and, and know that it is uh, such an important, reliable measure of student achievement, going way back to the the late '60s, right in uh, early '70s. That's right. So, what do you want us to know, Checker? What what is something that that us policy wonks do? Do we take NAEP for granted?
0: Well, first, let me say why people should, of course, get and read the book. Uh, The first half of it is a history of NAEP. How did this come about over the last 50 years? And the second half deals with uh, issues, opportunities, challenges, and the future. And that's where policy wonks will want to jump in and may have opinions that differ from my own, which is fine. Uh, I've already seen a few opinions differing from my own on the subject of NAEP's famous achievement levels, basic, proficient, and advanced. That's been a controversy for 30 years. But uh, the, the two big issues looking ahead for the national assessment, first, it needs to modernize in about 10 different ways it needs to become more techie. It needs to become more efficient and faster. And it needs to give people uh, data in ways they aren't getting it. And it needs to give people some categories of data they're not currently getting that they really ought to be getting. My favorite example there is uh, 12th grade data ought to be provided at the state level, uh, which it is not today. Fourth and eighth grade data are provided at the state level. But if you're a state policymaker or, or reformer, don't you want to know how kids are doing at the end of high school? I, I sometimes worry that states actually don't want to know. Uh, and that, that might be why it's not happening today. But modernization is the first big topic. And the other is that NAEP is facing some tough challenges as the political schisms and culture wars heat up particularly with respect to the perennial question of what should be on the test. Uh, Mm -hmm. What is the content, uh, the intended content, the desired content of the uh, subjects that NAEP is testing. Mm -hmm. This has been worked out over the years by the governing board, the national assessment governing board is 26 member body that creates NAEP's independent governance. And over the years, it's been able to reach a reasonable consensus about what should be on the test and that consensus, let me add, is, I think, crucial to NAEP's credibility and acceptance around the country and much of its value. But that consensus is getting fragile mm-hmm. and um, these assessment frameworks get revisited.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember us talking not too long ago about, you know, in, in reading, for example, how do we define reading? And is there a way to define it so that some of the terrible achievement gaps we see by race and class would maybe disappear if we define it a certain way? In other words, you hear people talking about how do we create an anti-racist assessment uh, that that wouldn't show gaps by race. And that gets you right into the heart of all of the culture war issues.
0: And the governing board uh, nearly came unglued over, over those issues with its new reading framework for future NAEP reading assessments. And could have had a meltdown, except that some wise heads within the governing board finally pulled it together and reached a and reached a consensus. But now they're starting on science, for example, which they haven't looked at for twenty years. So, uh, what about uh, climate change in the Mm -hmm. NAEP science uh, assessment? Uh, Mm -hmm. Indeed, what about evolution in the NAEP science assessment? And when Mm -hmm. they can work through that, if they can, they have to think about history and civics updates in those frameworks. So, talk about uh, the potential for meltdown.
1: Right. And this is right. And, and then the danger is that this, this gets blown up. And so then they just retreat to the safest, perhaps, subjects. Uh, let, let's talk about the modernization. I mean, you, you write about and you've talked about before, you know, this notion that they, the NAEP people still are like trudging around with their own devices that the kids <laughs> have to take the tests on. It costs a bazillion dollars. It takes forever. They, they are working on trying to clean some of that up. but. But this notion of 12th grade state-by-state state results, well, let me push on that, Checker. You know, you and I have had this debate about whether we were too focused on college for all. And isn't that part of it, that by the 12th grade, if, if we're still getting being obsessed with these academic tests and NAEP doesn't have anything in terms of career readiness, that, that again, we're putting our thumb on the scale in terms of, well... Uh, You know, all we really care about are academics. But for a lot of 18 year olds, you know, maybe that's not the most important question anymore. The question is whether they're ready to go, uh, you know, into an apprenticeship or into a job. And let's face it, those skills are somewhat different than what you need to succeed freshman year at a four year college.
0: Sure. And a legitimate potential add on to NAEP would be something in the in the CTE realm. But uh, NAEP has been testing things like uh, reading and writing and math and science and history and so on, the traditional uh, academic core. And even at 12th grade, it's not just a matter of readiness for college. Don't we care about achievement gaps at the 12th grade level, for example? Don't we care about high achievers at the 12th grade level? Don't we care about all the other things you learn uh, from NAEP data? And why is it more important to know that in eighth grade than in 12th grade? If I were a chief state school officer or a governor, end of high school, end of K-12 is exactly when I'd want to know, how's my state doing?
1: Well, some people would say, well, for one thing, we worry that the kids aren't actually trying very hard on those 12th grade tests. That's been a question all That around. turns
0: out to be a canard. That's actually so? been studied and debunked. Uh, the kids try hard enough. The sample is valid. The results are valid. Um, and um, the data are OK.
1: All right. You know, a- actually, my eighth grader would tell you that that's probably because they're not trying very hard on the eighth grade test either. So uh, I'm sure your eighth grader is trying really, really hard. Yes. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, they all, you know, the, of course, without, they're not taking Nate, but they're taking the state assessments. And the message from everybody is these don't count. They're stupid. They're just, you know, these dumb people up in, uh, in, in their case, Annapolis making us take these tests or in Washington. I try to remind him that it's it's supposed to uh, evaluate the quality of his schools. The teachers should care because they're being judged by these tests.
0: And you're going to get a report on how he does also. That's
1: right. That's so. right. Now, of course, NAEP doesn't do any of those things. So remind us, in, in your view, do, do we still need it, though, uh, when we do have all the state testing, the local testing? B- because it doesn't count for anything, is it less valuable in some ways? Uh, it doesn't no, tell be- you how your own kid or your own school is mm-hmm. doing.
0: Well, that's why people on the ground are un- unacquainted with it, but it but it has played a huge role in the accountability in the outcomes based results based accountability movement. It functions essentially as the auditor of the state assessments and standards. It's NAEP that tells us whether states are telling their own people the truth about how their own kids are doing, and ever since No Child Left Behind, that's been the grand compromise in federal mm-hmm. policy. States set their own standards and give their own tests, but then NAEP uh, functions as, as, as the auditor. It tells uh, the state how it's doing against NAEP standards and uh, whether the state is telling the truth to its, um, to its own people. And, and gradually, slowly, it does seep into what is taught in states, what is on state standards, what is on state tests. It's not a direct connection, mm-hmm. but it's a very important, gradual, indirect uh, influence.
1: Well, we'll all, of course, be watching for the next NAEP release when we're going to be curious to see just how awful the news is in the wake of the pandemic and also whether we see differences. You know, do we see that the red states that tended to keep their schools open or open them in the fall of 2020 instead of keeping them closed until the spring, like a lot of blue states did if if we see stronger performance there? And as you say, Checker, we wouldn't we wouldn't know that if it were not for NAEP.
0: You've just explained why we need it.
1: There you, go. there you go. All right. Well, again, everybody should now go immediately to their favorite online or physical bookstore, probably online. Let's face it. Go to Amazon, in other words, and go look up Chester E. Finn Jr. Assessing the Nation's Report Card Challenges and Choices for NAEP. It's wonky, but it's good. That's that's kind of like our tagline around here. That's
0: me, wonky, but good.
1: <laughs> okay, checker, Good. All right. Thanks again. Checker Finn, Fordham's President Emeritus, the original education gadfly. Go check out his book. Now it's time. All right, Checker. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks, Mike. I
1: should ask you how your Memorial Day weekend was, but uh let's be honest, we're taping this before the Memorial Day weekend, so I don't know, I don't want to jinx it.
2: Right. We we are indeed, but I will be <laughs> babysitting my godson for the weekend so my best friend can have a well-deserved weekend with her husband. So I'm excited about that.
1: Oh, that's great. How how old is that godson? He
2: is 14.
1: Oh, just like my oldest son. Yeah, yeah.
2: So when we're offline, you have to tell me what I do with a fourteen-year-old boy these days. Yeah,
1: very little is the answer. <laughs> no. uh, uh, you know, see if you can get him to leave his bedroom and his devices. That would be. <laughs> right. uh, that'll be a win. I see. Well, obviously, uh, we are all still feeling heavy hearts after what happened. What will now be last week in Texas? Another horrific, horrific experience. You know. Uh, my kids were not quite in school when Sandy Hook happened, but I still remember being upset. But it really mm-hmm. hit. Mm-hmm. This one really hit. It felt like a gut punch. Those pictures of those elementary school kids. It's just,
2: yeah, it's awful. Way, yeah, it's awful. it's awful. Especially at their age, it's an awful. Period. But yeah. when you're exposed to it at that age, it's like, oh uh, my goodness.
1: And and you know the parents that had to wait into the night to find out if their kids had survived the. The children right. saw their best friends get slaughtered. I mean, I, all of it. It just
2: Yeah. Yeah, and then I'm hearing there was some delay with some police officers who, you know, people say they weren't going in quickly enough even though we've got this heroic person who went in, so Yeah. Oh boy, it's going to get it's it's just going to get more, I think, difficult to process as as the days go on.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, that said, what do you have for us now on the research minute?
2: We have a study out of England In the Economics of Education Review examines something we've been talking about in this country for a long time, but we haven't been able to do it for obvious reasons. And that's getting rid of teacher salary scales or these fixed step and lane scales that all of us are familiar with, based mostly on teacher experience. Unbeknownst to me, apparently, England once had national pay scales. Uh, They had this main pay scale with six different lanes, um, and then this other one called the upper scale with three lanes. But this study is looking at the main pay scale, represents 55% of the teaching workforce. It's the focus of the study. Besides this teacher experience, the main pay scale also had a little bit of um, adjustments based on the geographic location of where the teacher was working based on these big four areas of the country intended to account for these higher cost of living adjustments around London. So starting in 2013, Mike, do you remember hearing about this? The government ended the use of the mandated national pay scale.
1: No, I mean, I I don't remember this at all.
2: Yeah. But it's interesting. And and it is
1: similar, it seems like, to those states that have statewide pay scales, which isn't the case in every state. But in uh, my sense is maybe more in the South and in some of the more rural places, that's common.
2: Yeah, that's right. So 20,000 plus state funded schools introduced their own performance related pay schemes after 2013 when the government said we're going to just get rid of this thing. their budgets were not impacted, however. so within their existing budget they could choose to change the school level average teacher pay or they could come up with some kind of variation in pay across teachers within the school. They have individual level data. They examine not only if the schools change teacher pay when given this new freedom, but also how it affected the composition of staffing and student outcomes. They use a difference in differences model with school and year fixed effects. They compare the pre-reform mean hourly wage of the labor market in which the school resides against the reality of post-reform wages. So specifically, they create a teacher level counterfactual, which was the expected annual level of pay growth growth based on what they would have gotten under the old scale system. So they're looking at deviation from the former expected pay progression for the teacher, which controls for relevant teacher demographics like experience. Uh, and then they also create school level measures of this average deviation from this expected pay growth based on this old model. OK, so that's how they're coming up with these differences. All right. First, they find that the reform leads teacher salaries to grow faster in tighter labor markets. Not too surprising. Post-reform, the analysts see an immediate decrease in teacher pay growth across all districts, but the decrease is smallest in labor markets with higher outside wages, where competition for labor is the highest. In general, teachers in these higher wage areas were paid more than those in low wage areas as a result of this reform, and the trend continued into future years as well. Everything was in pounds, Mike, which made it really hard for me to quickly convert all these differences uh, in the study. So you'll notice i kind of, kind of sliding over exactly what this meant uh, in dollars. Schools also tended not to hire new teachers, but to use the funds to increase existing teacher salaries. But this was the headline for me. Despite this flexibility within school variance in teacher pay growth was no higher than in the pre-reform years suggesting that any changes in teacher growth was applied equally to all staff, even though the government was trying to introduce this performance-based pay. All right, a couple more quick things, and then I'll let you in. Uh, Next, they find that increases in local median hourly wages did lead to some increases in, in student test scores, and that these gains were larger in schools with more disadvantaged populations, implying that these are the schools that were most negatively impacted by that national pay scale in terms of being able to retain teachers. And then they did this other estimate that showed that allowing this pay flexibility to areas with a 10% difference in local labor market wages, holding constant these budget constraints, resulted in relative average improvement of student performance of 1.7 to 2.3% of a standard deviation. So that's not bad. Uh, Again, we're talking about no increases in student budget, not increasing the dispersion of teacher pay within schools, uh, but this is what they found. Finally, the removal of the teacher pay scale led to males experiencing slightly higher pay growth than females, and teachers with more tenure experiencing slightly higher pay growth. Didn't see differences between STEM teachers who are more in demand and no higher growth there compared to non-STEM. One other little interesting thing, Black secondary teachers were more likely to benefit as well. They gained a 0.57 percentage point pay growth after the reform.
1: Okay, fascinating. It really is interesting. It sounds like this is more or less the same time that we were trying to do the whole teacher evaluation thing. <laughs> right, right. Pretty much crashed and burned. <laughs> there sounds like it didn't crash and burn, but maybe it didn't have a huge impact, but you know, some small ones. And you know, we always know in the teacher evaluation world, you know, that it's just that, that we do not have a culture where anybody wants to give a bad rating. To a teacher, right, right, and mm-hmm, and you can mm-hmm. explain it. If they can't fire them, anyways, then they're just they just make somebody mad, and they have to live with them. But here, it sounds like you could have done more differentiation, and they didn't want to. Again, is that just cultural? Is it just that principals on both sides of the pond are not really into <laughs> doing that because it's right, hard, right. and they, you know,
2: yeah, I don't know, but it would. It seems reasonable uh, to assume that um, that this is not a fun thing to do, right? And they did say that they were using the same measures as before the reform, you know, observations and looking at student performance and so on and so forth. So they didn't have any newer measures to determine who to pay more. So
1: there you go. Did They didn't look at teacher retention at all, did they?
2: No. Mm-mm.
1: Yeah. That would no. be one interesting thing is to say, you know, I mean, part of this whole thing about pay is. You know, it is uncomfortable in any organization, you know, making these decisions. But, you know, retention is, is one of those areas where if you've got somebody that is about to walk out the door because they can get paid more in another, in our case, in another district or because they, you know, think they might well go to another profession, you know, that's where some extra money can make a difference. You say, hey, what, you know, what if I pay you? Right. What are they offering? <laughs> if I pay you an extra 10000 this year, will you st- at least stick stick around another year or, you know, two? Or- right. That's Right. And uh, maybe they can't get at that. All right. Well, good. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Sounds to me like a, a smarter way to go than our teacher eval stuff. But but then again, it can never happen here in most places because of our teacher unions that are much more powerful than their. teachers.
2: That's unions. right. And interestingly enough, the teacher unions there still came up with what they, you know, the old scales, what it would have, you know, been, um, which the analysts were saying that was useful, you know, because that's what they were using to make some of their predictions. So, Anyhow, uh, yeah, they were they were still trying to hang on to those old scales and, and widely publicizing what they would be. So.
1: Gotcha. All right. Good stuff. All right, Amber. Well, hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week.
2: I'm Amber Northern and
1: I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.